And now, people of God, let us once again turn in our Bibles to the prophecy of Zechariah, that 6th century B.C. prophet. And I'm going to read three related portions of chapters 12 and 13 this morning. But before I do so, will you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, what a delight, what a wonder that we sinners are now saved by grace and may call Thee Father, that we as sons and daughters of the living God can come into the presence of the Holy One and know that we are received and accepted through Christ our Lord and loved by our Heavenly Father who has loved us from eternity, who loves us now and always will. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that as these texts are read and expounded this morning, that our minds and hearts may be open to Thy truth. No man is worthy of preaching the gospel. No man certainly is worthy of preaching these texts this morning. None of us is worthy of hearing them. It is all of grace from first to last. And we thank Thee for ordaining in Thy church that men would be called to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ and that through what the world would consider a foolish thing, preaching, many, many will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and the people of God continue on in their sojourn under the word until they're called home or Christ comes again. And so we ask, Heavenly Father, that thou wilt bow down the heavens and meet us here in that special and remarkable way that has been known time and again as we have sat under the word and sometimes known with special blessing in times of reformation and revival in thy church. Bow down the heavens, O God, and meet us unworthy, undeserving sinners, all because of grace, through the blood of Jesus Christ and his merit, through his name, we offer this prayer. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. <clears throat> Turn, first of all, to the 12th chapter of Zechariah. And we will read verse 10. This is the word of the Lord. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And now to chapter 13, verse 1. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And now this chapter 13, verse 7. 
Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, when a sinner sees the crucified Savior with the eyes of faith, he mourns and grieves over his sin and he repents of his sin. And this fundamentally is the meaning of what we read in the 10th verse of the 12th chapter this morning. This passage speaks of that future happy day in which ethnic Israel will, with the eyes of faith, look upon Jesus Christ and mourn over their sins. That this passage speaks of that happy day when the Jews will largely return to the Lord by believing in the Messiah, I affirm that it is only the Jews to which this relates, I cannot affirm. For I take that expression, on that day, that is used 16 times in chapters 12, 13, and 14, to mean essentially the gospel day that takes in all the way from the cross to the return of our Savior Jesus Christ. Now this chapter 12 begins with God's sovereign protection of His church throughout the gospel day that will culminate in the final all-out effort of the evil one to destroy the people of God. And in the earlier verses of chapter 12 that we did not read this morning, God would encourage us in the reality that the embattled people of God are ultimately unassailable and victorious. It begins by describing the power of God as creator and how he uses that power in the preservation of his people and he speaks of God's judgments on his enemies. And he uses various metaphors comparing Jerusalem as a cup of trembling and a burdensome stone and a torch of fire, all of which bring destruction upon the chosen people of God who have rebelled and upon the enemies of the chosen people of God who oppose the truth as it is in Jesus. But who are the true people of God? Who are they who are unassailable and victorious? Where they are those upon whom God will pour out His Spirit and who are granted saving faith to trust in Jesus Christ, the one who was pierced for our transgressions. And that theme of Christ's atoning and saving work binds together chapters 12 and 13. And I want to show that glorious theme by dwelling on these three texts that we have seen this morning all of which relate to the atoning work of Jesus, his shed blood on the cross. Chapter 12, verse 10, chapter 13, verse 1, and chapter 13, verse 7. So we begin with that word in chapter 12, verse 10, and the first thing that we see is mourning for him whom they pierced. And let's read the verse again as it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. 
The outpouring of the Holy Spirit is here mentioned, a spirit of grace, a spirit of supplication that awakens new and gracious affections that leads to fervent prayer as a result of conversion, which is always a result of conversion, such as the Apostle Paul, behold, he prayeth, was the first evidence of his conversion. Repentance will pervade the whole church, but especially here, the Jews in a future day when large numbers of the, of the Jews believe in the Lord Jesus Christ whom they pierced and are brought into the church of Jesus Christ. And that day, as we read from Romans 11 this morning, will be, as it were, a resurrection from the dead. Now, we are not suggesting that God works on two tracks, one for Israel and another for the church or for the Gentile. Rather, the Jews will be engrafted into the one single olive tree of God's people. I'm not promoting some kind of dispensational premillennialism. I can go to many an amillennialist. It has nothing to do with the dispensational viewpoint, of which I am one, an amillennialist. And we can find in those writers those who believe that there will be a future day of the conversion of the Jews. I could go to the great Gerhardus Voss in his shorter writings and point it out. Or I will go here in a moment to John Murray, the former professor of systematic theology at Westminster Theological Seminary, who holds this view in his excellent, outstanding commentary on the book of Romans. Murray concludes about Romans 11 with these words. If we keep in mind the theme of this chapter and the sustained emphasis on the restoration of Israel, there is no other alternative than to conclude that the proposition, all Israel shall be saved, is to be interpreted in terms of the fullness, the receiving, the engrafting of Israel as a people, the restoration of Israel to gospel favor and blessing, and the correlative turning of Israel from unbelief to faith and repentance. And then he adds... The Apostle Paul is thinking of a time in the future when the hardening of Israel will terminate. Oh, their hard hearts that cried out, crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. The hard heart of Israel will terminate. And so we await a revival in the future, a revival of prayer, a revival of repentance and what shall bring about this conversion? The Spirit of God poured out as the Word of God is preached and proclaimed. The gospel of Jesus Christ is believed. The Spirit of God taking home to the Jew as well as to the Gentile, but taking home to the Jew evidently massively the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the result shall be, they shall look on Him whom they pierced and mourn. They are no longer looking at self. They are looking at Jesus. They are looking upon the one whom they sent to the cross. And who is speaking in this passage? Well, God is speaking in this passage. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is God speaking, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look, listen to this, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. This is God, Jehovah, speaking. And how can God be pierced? Me, whom they have pierced. 
he says in this passage? Well, the passage can only be understood when we reflect upon all that God teaches in His Bible, and especially as we come to the New Testament in the progress of Revelation about the triune nature of God, that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and in glory. This is the deity of Christ that is spoken of here. How can God be pierced? That's what the text says. They will look on me, on Him whom they have pierced and mourn. The one crucified and slain is the one who is the second person of the Trinity. He is God who became man and dwelt among us in order that He might obey the law that we broke and go to the cross and shed His blood to redeem us from our sins. This is God in the flesh. And then they shall look on Him whom they pierced and mourned. Now in John chapter 19, Jesus is pierced by a Roman soldier. And there is partial fulfillment of this as the Jews look upon Christ on the day of His crucifixion. And this very verse is referenced in John 19.37 as being fulfilled in Jesus' crucifixion and His piercing through by that Roman soldier with that spear in His side as water and blood flowed out for the salvation of sinners like you and like me. But Prophecy often has multiple fulfillments, and that was a partial fulfillment. The day will come when Jews massively will turn in faith to Christ, whom they have so long neglected and despised, pierced or pierced through, sent to the cross by their cry, crucify him. This word pierced that is used here is the very same word that is used in chapter 13, verse 3, and it reads, if anyone again prophesies his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live for you speak lies in the name of the Lord, and his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies, piercing through the false prophet. Well, here is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the prophet, the priest and king of his people, the true prophet, king priest of his people, pierced through for our transgressions. And they will mourn because they pierced him through. They will look on him whom they pierced and mourn. Jehovah, can you begin to imagine this? Jehovah speaks of himself here. Time will come when their eyes, those blind eyes, are opened and they will mourn. Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as in heart and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. The time will come when these blind eyes will be opened. Now there's hope for you. For if it is true that these Jews who despise the, the Savior, who, who, who pierced Him through, who sent Him to the tree, who sent Him to the cross, is saved by that very act as the Father redeems through that shed blood, then there is hope for you, lost sinner, here today to be saved from your sin as well. That as they will say, what blindness has been ours? Perhaps even this morning, someone here will say, what blindness has been mine? As the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and grants you a new heart and saving faith. Now listen. It is the believer that mourns in bitterness. 
It is not mourn enough in bitterness and then you look to the Savior. See how deep in bitterness you can come and then because you have reached some, some kind of standard of mourning, then you trust in Christ. No, they look upon Him whom they pierce by faith and they mourn. Only believers hate sin. Tears do not produce salvation, but the believer repents all of his days. And so, looking requires no merit. It is not meritorious. But looking by faith is seeing in him all of the merit that you need for your salvation. That what is prophesied here as true of many Jews in the future is true for you today as you look upon him whom you pierced with your sins and mourn. The grief here is explained to us as public and private. I will not take the time to read verses 12 through 14, but read them on your own. And it speaks here of a parent in private grieving over the death of the Son of God as someone grieves who has lost an only child. And the point here is the depth of it, how deep it is. Deep grief. And the one they pierced will pierce their hearts by searching and calling and converting through the work of the Holy Spirit. The term that's, that's used here, safad, means to wail for the dead or lament It's used of smiting upon the breast. And it is compared in verse 11 to the mourning over the death of King Josiah at Hadad-Rimon, the occasion when godly King Josiah was slain by Pharaoh Necho in Egypt. And of that day, we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 35, So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in his second chariot and brought him to Jerusalem, and he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah, and all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah and their laments to this day. They made these a rule in Israel. Behold, they are written in the laments. It is like that day. It would be, someone has suggested, as if, as if when, when George Washington led our armies, if he had been killed, how would our armies and how would the nation have mourned? It's like that day, but greater because this is God in the flesh, whom they recognize to be the true Messiah, and now they mourn. Deep grief. Feinberg is right when he says the deepest grief seeks seclusion. Do you know that, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? It is good that we speak of our joy in Christ. Do we also know something of the depth of that grief that seeks time alone with the Lord to say to the Lord, it was my sin that put you there. Yes, I know there was the plan of God the Father to redeem and save me, but at the same time, my sins put him on the tree. It is right for the believer to mourn in that way. 
And so we have here a sort of national day of atonement when the Jews mourn as one, yet the grief is deeply individual also, as is conversion, because no one can be converted for you. No one can do a spiritual act for you. No one can believe for you. No one can mourn as a believer and continue to repent for you. It's deeply individual. And here is how sinners are saved. Sinners look with the eye of faith on Him whom we pierce through with our sins for which He died. And true repentance comes from a sight of Christ, the crucified one. T.V. Moore said very powerfully and beautifully, True repentance is, after all, only love weeping at the foot of the cross, the soul sorrowing for sins that have been so freely forgiven. (laughs) And so we have here Christ as the object of faith. Faith must have an object, and there is only one object, and that object is Christ. Do not rest in your faith, rest in Christ. Do not rest in your belief, rest in the one upon whom faith looks. Do not look at your faith, but look to Christ. And even when you mourn over your sin, the point is to look again afresh to Christ who died for our sin. Now, you know, there are two other times in addition to John 19 where the New Testament references this passage here in Zechariah that we have been looking at. There's Matthew 24:30, which I will not read, but there also is Revelation 1:7. That passage speaks of beholding this one whom we pierced. It says this: "Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen." So not the Jews only, but all who have not been converted when Christ comes again. Here in Revelation 1-7, they will mourn, but it's not the mourning of those who believe. It is not the mourning of repentance. It is not the mourning of hatred of sin and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the mourning of those who are unconverted and who will never be converted. It is the mourning of those who are lost forever. And so it is used eschatologically and is especially important for us to understand that here in Revelation 1-7 is not mourning in faith and repentance, but the mourning in despair that will cause them in chapter 6 to call out the rocks and the hills, let them fall on me. Let not that be the mourning that you experience. Trust in Christ. Go to Him in faith. Look upon Him. Because not only is there the mourning over sin, but there also is joy. And only the believer can know these things, how they mingle together in the soul experientially. But it's true that we trust in Christ and we love the Lord Jesus and so we mourn over sin and we rejoice that our sins are forgiven. And that truth is taken up in chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. 
And so the second thing we see in this text or this section is a fountain opened. A fountain opened. I said a fountain opened. A fountain opened for the cleansing of sin. And so this look upon Christ is one of faith and repentance, as we saw in chapter 12, verse 10. But when the Jews mourn in faith while looking upon the crucified Christ, they will be saved by that Christ. And that is true for any who look in faith to them and their sins will be washed away. And so there's this metaphor here of a fountain. Actually, it's a term that's usually used for the digging of a cistern or a, a deep well. A fountain opened, of course, now to all who believe. That fountain is even open as the Word of God is proclaimed this morning. But the point here is the day coming in which lost sinners of ethnic Jews will trust in Christ. They'll remember again, all who trust in Christ our spiritual Israel, according to the New Testament. We are heirs of faith, heirs of faith, children of Abraham through faith in Christ. So here is the purifying power of the cross. And when we read in this passage on that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Israel to cleanse them from their sin. That word sin there actually is a, a word that, that references guilt, Guilt. Do you know what it is to have a guilty conscience? Do you know what it is to be guilty as you think upon eternity? This fountain is open for the removal of guilt. And the removal of guilt is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone, where we trust in Christ and our guilt is dealt with in the courtroom of God forever and ever and ever. It is done away. And so, he says, to cleanse them from sin, but also, it says, from uncleanness. And here he means moral defilement. Do you know what it is to have a defiled mind, to have a defiled heart, to come to realize you're dirty and you're not clean and God is holy and altogether pure? Well, this fountain that is opened removes guilt, but also removes defilement. And so we have justification and we have sanctification in this one verse that is open before us. Now, there are possible allusions here to the Levitical law, and I won't deal with that, the sprinkling of the water for the cleansing. But the fountain open points undoubtedly to those same truths and realities found in the Levitical law, the sinner's justification and sanctification. But let me remind you of what Israel was like. Let me remind you of how we read in the book of Jeremiah, the words of chapter 2, verse 13 for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Did you hear it? They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He repeats that again in chapter 17 of Jeremiah. What about you? Have you hewn fountains, cisterns, that can hold no water? And have you forsaken in your sin? Have you forsaken 
the fountain of living waters. Oh, how foolish we sinners are to forsake the only one who can cleanse us, the God of the universe that, that in love and kindness and grace and mercy fellowships with sinners through Jesus who are redeemed. And to continue to dig, 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 dig cisterns that hold no water. Lost souls we are by nature. So the fountain here, what is the fountain? No, it's not what is the fountain. Who is the fountain? Because the fountain is Jesus himself. He is the fountain that cleanses. He is the one who cried out at the Feast of Tabernacles. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and out of his belly shall there flow forth rivers of living water. You know, perhaps the best application that we can make of this passage is in those words that we as a congregation love to sing, Cooper's great hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Sinners plunged beneath that flood, the blood of Jesus, lose all their guilty stains. Don't tell me about your works. Don't tell me about your merits. Don't tell me about Jesus, yes, but I add to it. It is altogether Christ, altogether his merit, altogether his work. It is Christ alone and no one else who can redeem whether it's the Jews later, whether it's you now. And oh, we long for that day when many a Jew will be plunged beneath that, that flood. But I long today, today, this hour, in this place. I long for lost people who are here today to come to Jesus Christ by faith and to experience within your soul the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ. I long this day that some here be plunged under this flood of forgiving blood that flows from Jesus' side, because today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Do not procrastinate. Don't think, well, I can just think of it another time, maybe. Wait till my deathbed, maybe. Don't put it off. Today is the day of salvation. And the result in that day will be the removal of idolatry. Now that's found in verses 2 through 6, which I invite you to look upon later in your day. But it is so thorough he says, that the prophets are, are represented as attempting to hide their former employment, their false prophecies. But the signs are still there. Signs of self-inflicted wounds. No, no, I, I, I didn't, I didn't, I, I got those wounds from friends. No, you didn't. You got those wounds in your pagan idol worship. And the point of all of this was that prevalent sins of the past will now be shameful among the people of God. But now the prophet summarizes this theme. Now remember where we've been over these past weeks. Back there in chapter 11, the shepherd and the 30 pieces of silver and the pierced Savior 
and the cleansing fountain. By divine inspiration, the prophet moves deeply and profoundly into what all of this means, its ultimate source, its ultimate purpose, and he gives the reasons for the coming and piercing of the Messiah, which leads us to the third text and the third thing, the sword awakened, the sword awakened. And we see it here in verse 7 of chapter 13. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now, our Lord applied these, these words, this verse, applied this passage directly to himself in Matthew 26, verses 30 and 32. That's after he spoke of the the coming denial of Peter, the Lord's Supper had been instituted, and there in Matthew, let me turn to it, he says in chapter 26, and when they had sung a hymn, this is verse 30, they went out to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So if we take into consideration Zechariah 11, the, the shepherd, and Matthew 26, that it just puts this beyond question that these verses here, this verse, these words in 13.7 are referencing the cross. And so God himself says, awake, O sword. Imagine a sleeping sword. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. And sword, of of course, is a symbol of judicial authority. For example, in Romans, Romans 13, the state has the power of the sword. It's a judicial power given to the state. Well, Christ's death was judicial, people of God. The exercise of the penal authority of God's law. Yes, my sin put him there, but it was the plan of the triune God that the Son would come and the Father would draw his sword against this one who is his shepherd and his equal. And the vicarious nature of the atonement is the theme. The shepherd is struck in the place of the sheep. What must what must our sin be? This is the kind of thing I don't do often enough in my life. I suspect few here do. And the church no longer does, by and large. Just for me to consider, what must my sin be that it required God's only begotten Son to remove it? for the sword of justice to enter into Him on the cross, that He might be the propitiation for our sins. That is to say, the one who bore the wrath of God, who took the sword that I deserved, and you deserved. Awake, O sword, this judicial judgment against my shepherd. And when He speaks of the shepherd, He says, against the man who stands next to me. That's how it is here in the ESV. It's a good translation. The word omit is used 
in the Pentateuch to mean one who is nearest kin. And so he is saying here to us, as we understand this in light of all that we read in Holy Scripture and what comes after in the New Testament, that this is the one who is human, but also is divine. That he is the God-man. He shares in the being of God meaning that He is God in the flesh. And here we have the twofold nature of Christ, human and divine in one person forever. Carl Friedrich Keil, German evangelical Old Testament scholar of great renown, made this very point when he said, the idea of nearest one or fellow. You see, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my fellow, who is next to me. The idea of nearest one or fellow involves not only similarity in vocation and calling, but community of physical or spiritual descent, according to which he whom God calls his neighbor cannot be a mere man, but can only be one who participates in the divine nature or is essentially divine. He was and remains God and man in one person forever. And then what happens? He takes the blow. The sheep are scattered. The disciples on the night he was betrayed, but also it predicts the destruction of a majority of the theocratic people, but a saved remnant in verses 8 and 9. In the whole land declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God, the covenant formula. And he will save those whom he came to save, because he promises here to save a remnant. And it's very possible where it says, I will turn my hand against the little ones, but it can be translated upon my little ones. It can have a positive meaning, speaking of that remnant whom he will save. So what he is saying here is that I have plans for you, Israel, ethnic Israel, to make you Christians, to bring you to Christ, to make you part of the people of God, to be engrafted back into that one olive tree. There are plans of mercy that I have for you. The Lord will bring to pass as the fruit of the cross this plan of mercy, and perhaps for someone here today, God has a plan of mercy for you, a plan to save and a plan to redeem, perhaps even now welling up within your heart for the very first time ever is faith in the crucified one. If you have faith in the crucified one, oh yes, God has a plan of mercy for you, and you are now beginning to know it and experience it. Let me bring this to conclusion. Let me mention two or three things. First, Christian, let's remember to pray for the Jews, for the conversion of the Jews. And whether you think Romans 11 is teaching that over the gospel day, many will come to know the Lord and all Israel will be saved, which I think is certainly there, or whether you believe, as I do, that it's saying many will come to know the Lord through the gospel age, but there will be something like a resurrection of the dead at the end where it will be massive. Pray for the conversion of the Jews. 
Walter Tate, a Scottish minister in 1811, gave three reasons for praying for the Jews. A, because their salvation must be peculiarly honoring to God. B, because taking a peculiar interest in the salvation of the Jews is only making a proper return for the spiritual advantages that we enjoy by them. And C, because their final restoration must have a favorable aspect on the conversion of the whole Gentile world. Let's pray for the conversion of the Jews. As our Scottish Presbyterian forefathers did, often from the pulpit and often in their private prayers. But then, before we're done, I want to ask this important question of you again. Do you know Christ crucified and risen from the dead? Again, TV Moore no human merit. Listen to this, those of you who want to mingle your works with the work of Christ. No human merit can mingle with the infinite merit of the work of Christ, for he trod the winepress alone. It is impossible for us to eke out our works with Christ's work or to attempt with our filthy rags to patch the seamless robe of his righteousness when the shepherd was smitten, the sheep were scattered, and the blow fell on him alone. And I warn you, don't listen to these modern preachers who will say that old view of vicarious atonement, shedding blood for sinners, we can't believe that anymore. We have to reinterpret it, and we have to give it a different meaning. Those men are false prophets, and that will damn souls. Let me tell you, there is only one Savior of sinners, and He is the one who went to the cross to die for sinners in our place and took the wrath of God for us. Spurgeon somewhere said, in theology, often that which is true is not new, and what is new is not true. Trust in Christ alone. Having mentioned Mr. Spurgeon, I read recently something that he said that is certainly applicable here. Listen to this. Perhaps we have not come to the very center of heartbreaking thought. He said that. The wonder is that Jesus Christ should suffer thus as the result of sin, of our sin. A young man, a young man ran away from home and left his aged mother that he might plunge into sin. After a few shameful years, he came back to his country and sought his home. When he knocked at the cottage door, he asked for his mother, but she was not there. What name did you say, sir? She died years ago. And how did she die? Well, they say she had a son who treated her with cruelty and at last left her to indulge his own evil passions. She could not bear it. For she loved him much. She sickened. No one could comfort her. She died, they say, of a broken heart. And that is her grave over the hedge yonder in the churchyard. Well might the sinner turn away with reeling brain and wish himself under the turf at her side. I slew my mother by my sins. If he weeps not at this, he must be a devil indeed. Jesus Christ, my Lord, 
hangs on that tree slain by my sins, shall I not sorrow now? Had I never sinned, there had been no need of a Savior for me. Had we never rebelled against God, there would have been no sword of vengeance to plunge into his heart. Was it for crimes that I had done, he groaned upon the tree? Young people, let me say this to you. You young people, children and young people who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, let me just say, if the Son of God died for you and made this ultimate sacrifice for you, love Him with all of your heart and begin to understand that there's no sacrifice you could make for Him that is too much. We sometimes sing the hymn, Stricken, Wounded, and Afflicted. Here's the last line. Here we have a firm foundation. Here the refuge for the lost. Christ, the rock of our salvation. His the name of which we boast. Lamb of God for sinners wounded. Sacrifice to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded who on Him their hope have built. You hear that, young people? You build your life on Him who died for sinners and who rose from the dead. Amen.